we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's October, Friday the 6th, and you're listening to Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. It's been a year and a half since Governor Whitmer's administration set ambitious goals to reduce Michigan's carbon footprint. So how are we doing in the transition to renewable energy? We'll find out from an MLive climate reporter at the top of today's show. After that, an update on the United Auto Workers strike and a harmful algal bloom in Muskegon Lake. Then some highlights to watch for in the October night skies, and last but certainly not least, the world's oldest chicken, who calls the town of Chelsea home. That's all coming up on Michigan News from MLive. Michigan utility regulators say the state's on track to meet its goal of 35% renewable energy by 2025. It's just one step towards a much larger goal of carbon neutrality by the year 2050, and that's all part of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's climate plan. Sherry McWhirter is a climate reporter with MLive and has written several great stories this week with updates on those goals. Sherry, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me and highlighting my articles this week. Well, it was a lot of great work, and I highly encourage people to check it out. It's good to stay on top of, you know, it's one thing for a state to make a promise. It's another thing to follow up and see how we're doing. So you spoke with state officials who said, again, Michigan is on track to hit 35% renewable energy by 2025. That's less than two years away. So how far do we have to go? What percent of Michigan's energy comes from renewables right now? Well, um, State regulators say that the regulated utilities met a required 15% renewable energy requirement for 2021, and that today, more than 16% of Michigan's power generation comes from renewable sources like wind and solar. The chairman of the Michigan Public Service Commission said he believed the state is poised to really ramp up building renewable infrastructure and He expects uh, the state will meet that 35% goal for 2025, but there is a lot of work to do between now and then. Michiganders should expect to see more and more solar panels and perhaps even wind turbines uh, as the renewable energy fleet expands in the coming years. So it sounds like some major progress in the past couple years, but still a long way to go. Sherry, Michigan's major energy providers will, will need to play a big role in meeting the state's goals. The main two are consumers and DTE. What steps are those companies taking to transition to renewable energy? Well, both companies have plans to build a lot of solar energy. 
consumers energy intends to entirely end its use of coal for power generation by 2025, which we've said is fast approaching. The utility uh, closed down its Carn 1 and 2 coal plants in June this year and just this week announced plans to build an 85-megawatt solar array on the site. So that's just a part of the 8,000 megawatts of solar the company intends to build out over the next 15, 16 years. Now for DTE, that company plans to build more than 15,000 megawatts of renewable energy over the next two decades, of which 800 megawatts we should see in the next five years. But DTE will be burning coal at its plant in Monroe until at least 2035, according to current plans. And coal is the dirtiest fossil fuel. Now, the big picture goal here set in Governor Whitmer's climate plan is carbon neutrality. Can you tell listeners what exactly that means? Because sometimes I think it's a term that gets thrown around without everyone really knowing what we're talking about. It's more than just where our energy comes from, right? It is. And it can be quite complicated. The uh, governor's clean energy goals that lawmakers are currently considering right now uh, would set a 60% renewable and 100% clean energy standard for Michigan. There's a difference between what is renewable and what is considered clean energy, including some definitions currently being debated in Lansing. So stay tuned for more there. But in general, renewable energy means There are no greenhouse gas emissions into the Earth's atmosphere through the power generation process. That covers energy such as solar, wind, and hydro. But carbon neutrality means that whatever carbon emissions are generated, they are offset by activities that reduce emissions elsewhere or sequester carbon from the air. That can be anything from emission scrubbers in factory smokestacks to forestry practices that involve carbon credits. Yeah, forest carbon credits are definitely something interesting to keep an eye on. I know the DNR has started that in Pigeon River Country State Forest, something I've looked into in the past. Just a side note. Now, Sherry, let's look even outside the realm of just energy and what turns on our light switches. You wrote a story on Wednesday that looks at how upcoming changes in recycling regulations can even help towards Michigan's climate goals. Tell us more about that. Absolutely. Well, recycling helps reduce carbon emissions by decreasing the amount of energy needed to mine and process raw materials into manufactured goods. It's been shown to reduce both air and water pollution and conserve natural resources. Uh, Michigan's climate plan calls for the state to triple its recycling rate to drop collective greenhouse gas emissions from industry, while at the same time bolstering a circular economy in which manufacturers can make profitable use of materials that might otherwise just end up in a landfill. Uh, Michigan overhauled its solid waste laws at the end of last year, and the changes are coming now. Uh, Counties will be required to boost recycling in their communities and prove it to the state. The idea is to pluck as much valuable material from the waste stream as possible. Metals, plastics, glass, anything that can be reused, including organic compostables, which are a big source of methane gas from landfills. And as Sherry has reported, you can learn more details about the changes to Michigan's recycling regulations and what it could mean in your community at one of several regional meetings 
There's October 12th in Bay City, the 19th in Petoskey, the 20th in Escanaba, and the 30th in Wayne County. And if you miss those, you can attend a virtual meeting on October 18th. There's a link to that and more in Sherry McWhirter's story on MLive.com. Sherry, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Hey listeners, it's Lindsay Moore here with a UAW strike update. Since we talked last, there were two new strike targets announced at Ford and GM, including a Lansing assembly plant. That brings the total of 43 facilities on strike across the Detroit Three and 25,000 workers on the picket line. Here in Michigan, there are 15 plants and nearly 11,000 workers striking right now. Stellantis was spared from the latest strike targets last week, and we're told from UAW sources that they were negotiating right up until the last minute and into the Facebook Live announcement. And so we're waiting to hear this Friday to see if there will be any strike expansions. The UAW is not releasing that information and says only that we'll get a negotiation update. Since then, though, we have seen hundreds of layoffs across the big three as these dominoes continue to fall. Uh, For instance, Ford gave us a little bit of an insight that 125,000 suppliers are part of the ecosystem at the Ford assembly plant in Wayne, which was one of the first strike targets. And they've seen thousands of layoffs at this point in their supplier circle. The Anderson Economic Group here in Michigan is estimating that the impact of these first two weeks is around 3.9% five billion with a B, and that is largely supplier losses. Ford also went on the defense talking about battery plants and accused the UAW of holding the deal hostage over them. We've talked a lot about electric vehicles being kind of the elephant in the room in negotiation, and now it seems to be less subtle that they're very much talking about these battery plants in the future of auto. Uh, the UAW largely sees that as a job security issue, but largely says that the Ford announcement was mischaracterizing the holdup over electric vehicles. UAW says that they have larger economic divisions between them on the counter offers that include wages, pensions, time off. Uh, So we'll see where this heads, but all parties agree that they're not at an impasse, that talks are active, and counteroffers are going back and forth quite fluidly this week. So we are all waiting in the wings to see how much longer this strike will last as we are rounding out week three. While many might welcome the warm start we've had to October in Michigan, it hasn't been great for water quality in parts of the state. Some residents of Muskegon were warned on Monday to stay out of the lake. Garrett Ellison is an environmental reporter with MLive and reported on the harmful algal bloom that turned part of Muskegon Lake green this week. Garrett, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So over the past decade, these algal blooms have become a really big concern all over the Great Lakes region. Folks might remember a particularly bad bloom in Lake Erie in 2014 that made residents of Toledo unable to drink their water for three days. We're not talking about a bloom of those proportions, but Garrett, in general, what's so dangerous about these algal blooms? Well, they contain a, uh, a, a cyanobacteria, which is uh, a blue-green algae is, is one of the terms for it. It's called micro... Generally, it's called microcystin, all right? Different algae blooms can have different species of bacteria, but 
Microcystin blooms are the most common. That's what's in Lake Erie. That's what's believed to uh, be in Muskegon Lake. And, you know, if you come into contact with it, it can it can make you sick, uh, sort of uh, gastrointestinal illness type of symptoms. Uh, and enough concentration, enough ingestion of that stuff can actually be lethal for people. And often uh, animals, there are dogs that die every year um, around the United States after swimming and in, in algae waters and ingesting some of that stuff. Hmm. And, and where where do they come from? Like, how do these cyanobacteria these harmful algal blooms occur well they're sort of it's sort of a natural uh naturally occurring species of bacteria uh, happens to be in a lot of water bodies uh, but it doesn't doesn't generally produce a al- algae bloom unless there's the, unless the conditions are right right so high water temperatures lots of sunlight um and there's got to be fuel for these bacteria uh, and that's nutrients uh, primarily phosphorus which tends to drive the size of the algae bloom and then nitrogen, which is the sort of the nutrient that tends to drive the toxicity uh, factor of blooms, right? And so when those nutrients are at high levels in the water body and you have a really uh, hot day and, you, you know, it's probably a calm day where there's not a lot of wind and wave action breaking things up on the water, you know, these algae blooms can develop and then they can get pretty thick along the shoreline in some areas where you get that scum layer that where it looks like you know you've seen pictures a lot of people have seen pictures of uh, a glass of water or you know a cup of something scooping this stuff off the top of the the lake and pouring it out and it looks like green paint uh, essentially and that's the stuff you really want to stay away from now let's talk specifically about this bloom in muskegon this week when was it noticed and where is it in town well, so it was noticed uh, Monday morning, uh, an aerial photographer in Muskegon uh, named David Ruck, uh, who uh, coincidentally has uh, produced a very good documentary on the Lake Erie algae bloom, bloom named The Erie Situation. Um, he had his drone up and, and just sort of noticed that the water was green. This bloom seemed to be, oh, you saw a lot of scum along the Terrace Point Landing, which is a housing development um, along the lakeshore near downtown, some like the Mart Dock, um, you know, some of the nearshore areas. And, and Muskegon, you know, for those unfamiliar, is sort of at the uh, eastern edge of Muskegon Lake. You know, you got to go across Muskegon Lake and out to Lake Michigan through a channel. Uh, so, you know, you get these westerly winds, prevailing westerly winds across Lake Michigan have a tendency to sort of push this stuff towards uh, the eastern edge of the lake, and that's where downtown Muskegon is. These blooms often seem like summer news to me. Is it unusual to see a bloom like this in October? Uh, not really, not anymore. Scientists uh, at Grand Valley and, and elsewhere are saying that bloom season is starting to extend. Um, you know, you're starting to see blooms begin earlier uh, in the year, early to mid-July versus late July, um, and then extending past September. You're starting to get them in October uh, more often. Um, And, you know, like in Lake Erie last year, uh, in 2022, I mean, the bloom was in, you know, persisted into November. Changes in the bloom season, changes in the lakes, and Garrett Ellison will be staying on top of it. He's an environmental reporter with MLive. You can read his coverage of a harmful algal bloom in Muskegon Lake at our website, MLive.com. Thanks, Garrett. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.
Last month, we had MLive reporter Emily Bingham on the show to tell us about the blue supermoon. Well, she's back today with some more night sky highlights to watch for in October. Hi, Emily. Hey, Patrick. So let's start with the big one. Tell us about the so-called ring of fire eclipse coming up this month. Yeah, this is happening on October 14th. It is an annular solar eclipse, which is a little bit different than a total solar eclipse in that when the moon passes between the earth and the sun, it does so at the farthest point in its orbit. So it's really distant and it doesn't totally block out the sun but it does cover just enough of the sun to leave a halo or ring of light around the sun. And so that it, so it has earned the nickname a ring of fire eclipse. Now in Michigan, we are not going to see the total ring of fire eclipse. Um, that path for the ring of fire viewing will be roughly in the Western US, but we will get to see about 30% of the sun eclipsed by the moon. So people will still probably want to head outside and see this because it's going to make the sun appear sort of like a crescent shape in the sky, which will be really cool to see. Yeah, that is that is really neat. And is there any kind of special eye protection we should wear if we're going to be looking at this particular eclipse? Absolutely, yes. Everything you read online about um, solar eclipse viewing can't stress enough how important eye safety is when viewing a solar eclipse. And according to NASA, you don't want to just go on Amazon and order any solar eclipse viewing glasses. You'll want to go through NASA's list of preferred solar eclipse viewers um, because there are some knockoffs on Amazon that apparently aren't exactly safe for your eyes. So be sure to use proper eye protection. And if you're going to be photographing this eclipse, uh, make sure that you have a special covering for your lens as well. That's important to note. Now, if you miss out on that eclipse, there's also a total solar eclipse taking place in April. You mentioned that in your story too, Emily. That's a ways out, but where can folks go to catch that total eclipse and what can they expect to see? Yeah, so this is going to be another amazing eclipse uh, similar to the one that we had in 2017 happening on April 8th, 2024. Total solar eclipse is going to cross more than a dozen states in the U.S. and it's going to get as close to Michigan as Toledo, Ohio. So, a lot of southeastern Michigan will have almost a total solar eclipse view. About 99% of the sun will be blocked. But if you want the spectacle of seeing the total solar eclipse, you're going to want to head a little bit south. And according to the astronomer that I talked to, his hot tip was to make sure that you hit the road early because apparently traffic around solar eclipses can get really crazy. So the eclipse will be moving through Ohio and through Toledo around 3.15 p.m. So you're going to want to make your plans ahead of time if you want to see the eclipse pass through that part of the states that day. Yeah, a little uh, inside information. I know several people who have gone to southern Illinois for these total eclipses, um, the Shawnee National Forest. A little, little bit of a longer drive, but could be neat. So moving on to some other night sky phenomena. We've got quite the lineup for October. You've also written about a meteor shower. When should we keep an eye out for that? Yeah, the annual Orionids meteor shower is happening this month, all month long, actually. Uh, this is a meteor shower that results from the Earth passing through the dust debris trail left behind by Halley's Comet, which is a really famous comet. Um, you can see these uh, meteors and possibly even fireballs all month, but the meteor shower will be peaking overnight on the night of October 20th to the 21st, so that is your best bet for seeing the most meteors. Uh, it'll be roughly 10 to 20 per hour. It's not exactly a plentiful shower, but the meteors are known for being exceptionally beautiful and fast, and like I said, sometimes even fireballs. There you go. Well, October 20th, 21st, the peak, put that down on your calendars. 
All right. Anything else of note in these October nights, guys? Yeah, there's actually quite a few planets that are going to be um, showing up in the sky throughout the month. One particularly beautiful scenario in the sky will be Venus on the morning of October 10th. Venus has transitioned into a morning star right now. It's super bright. It's so beautiful. You can look to the east uh, a little bit before sunrise and you will see it near a crescent moon, which is going to be gorgeous. And if you look between the two of them, you might get to see a bright blue-white star known as Regulus, which glows from the heart of the constellation Leo the Lion. All right, October 10th. That's coming right up. You can catch, what was it, Venus, Regulus, and a crescent moon. Sounds like a beautiful thing to catch. Emily Bingham is on MLive's Skywatching Beat and also covers travel, conservation, and outdoor recreation. You can read her work at MLive.com. Emily, thanks for your time. Thanks, Patrick. The town of Chelsea, between Jackson and Ann Arbor, is known as the home of Jiffy Mix, the Purple Rose Theater, and the Waterloo State Recreation Area. But this small town now has another claim to fame, home of the world's oldest chicken. And that's backed up by the Guinness Book of World Records. You can read all about it in a great profile of this chicken and its human at MLive.com. Chloe Miller wrote the story and is here now. Hi, Chloe. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. Uh, even better after reading this super fun story. The, the first question that I think comes to anyone's mind here is, how old is this chicken? Old enough for a driver's license? Can the chicken order me a beer? How old are we talking here? So Peanut, which is actually her name, she is old enough to buy any type of alcohol beverage that she wants. She is <laughs> 21 officially. Um, she turned 21 when she, I think it was in May, uh, the owner told me. Wow. I mean, that's, that's amazing. But I, I just looked it up. There's an estimated 34 billion chickens in the world. How do we know Peanut is the oldest? And did someone from the Guinness Book of Records, like, make the trip to Chelsea just to see this bird and confirm its age? Or, or how does that process even work? So, but the owner, her name is Marcy Parker Darwin. She basically never even realized or was paying attention to how old Peanut was. Uh, it wasn't until some friends had been pointing out to her that, you know, you've had this chicken for as long as I have known you. And they finally pushed her to just submit a recommendation uh, to the Guinness World Records. They reached out to her. She sent a bunch of photos that she had of Peanut over the years over to them. Uh, they came and just verified them all. And then they, she had a few witness statements, veterinary statements to confirm all that. And it was it was a long process, she said, took a few months. Um, but they got confirmed and Peanut was given the certificate. Wow, I wonder if Peanut has a certificate hanging on her office wall or anything like that. That's, that's a serious accomplishment. So, Chloe, you took a trip to Marcy Parker Darwin's home. Could you describe the place that Peanut calls home? What's the setting like? Because, you know, maybe maybe there's the secret somewhere in there to the chicken's long and happy life. No, of course. Um, So Peanut uh, is actually an indoor chicken. The Parker Darwin, their house uh, has a bunch of different birds outside. They have ducks, chickens, and uh, at least some peacocks as well. But Peanut is strictly indoors. Um, And based in there, she has her own cage. She gets to run around. She basically just has the best life I think a chicken or even just any person would wish for. <laughs> um, <laughs> she uh, is very loved. She gets lots of hugs from her owner, 
gets to hang out, everything like that. So I, I would say she has a very relaxing, very attentive life. Yeah, and it's obviously remarkable how long this chicken has lived, but there's also a pretty remarkable story to how its life began. I really liked that part of your feature. Tell us a bit about when Peanut hatched. Yeah, so Peanut actually had a little bit of struggle when she first uh, came and was in her egg. Marcy, uh, I believe, just predicted at first that Peanut was born without what was called uh, an egg tooth, I think I believe it's called. It's like a little part of the beak that a chicken is born with that helps them get out of the egg. Uh, She predicted she was born without that and she had to help peel Peanut apart actually um, out of the egg. And so, you know, Peanut had a little bit of rough start to life, but uh, now she grew up to be about 21 years old. And I think that is pretty fascinating. And I think Marcy, the owner, also thinks it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, defying the odds. I mean, two decades and change later, Peanut's still kicking. So how's her health? I mean, can we expect another 20 years? Um, I think everyone's kind of hoping for that. Um, And based on what the owner had told me, that she is not giving up anytime soon. She is still the same little chicken that she was when she was first born. Very, very sassy, very independent, um, very active, loves the outdoors. Um, And I think the owner is very much hoping for many, many more years with Peanut. Well, fingers crossed for another 20, and she's already lived a full life, too. Chloe, in closing, did Marcy have anything to say about the secret to Peanut's longevity? Yeah, just basically lots of love. And the Michigan allied poultry industries, who we spoke to about this story as well, uh, tend to agree with her. The average lifespan for a chicken is about like five to ten years, they said. And due to her great housing, the considerable attention she gave and the decreased stress from that really contributed to this long, long lifespan for Peanut. Well, you heard it, folks. Love your chickens. Love your chickens well. Chloe Miller is a reporter with MLive based in Jackson County. You can read her story on Peanut, the world's oldest chicken. That's at our website, MLive.com. That just about does it this week. But first, here's a quick roundup of the weekend's football schedule. Eastern Michigan hosts the Ball State Cardinals in Ypsilanti. Kickoff is Saturday at 3.30 p.m. You can watch on ESPN Plus, where before that you can also catch the Western Michigan Broncos. They're on the road this weekend. They play the Mississippi State Bulldogs at noon. The Wolverines are headed to Minneapolis to take on the Golden Gophers in their third conference game. Michigan looks to continue its unbeaten run, 5-0 on the season, and ranked number two nationally. That game kicks off Saturday night at 7.30 p.m. on NBC and streaming on Peacock. And it's a bye week in Lansing for the Michigan State Spartans, who are 2-3 this season and 0-2 in conference play. Finally, Central Michigan heads to upstate New York where they'll face the Buffalo Bulls. That's a 2 p.m. kickoff on ESPN+. Thanks for listening to Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. Have a great weekend.